Spinners of Yarns podcast, uh, Rule Galloway with Alistair Mackay, author, journalist, musician. Well, I wouldn't say that, no. <laughs> <laughs> but you, you, you've done some music in the past. Yeah, yeah, I used to, I was the non-singing singer, so yeah. when, when you, in the area where you didn't have to sing, I was the singer. So, so it, it's kind of like your... We were just talking like this. You, uh, you, you weren't born in Scotland. No, due to an accident of economics, I was born in Harold Wood, so I'm an Essex man, as you can tell from yeah, my accent. So my dad was working at a power station down here, so for six months or so, we lived there. And then briefly went to Seaton Sluice in Northumberland. Yeah. Till I was four, and then home to Scotland in North Berwick. Is North Berwick in Scotland, or is it in England? Oh, well, no, I think you're making a mistake. There's, there's Berwick. Oh, no, North Berwick, yeah, that's uh, on, the, on the coast there, near Gullane. Gullane, yeah. Gullane, yeah. 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 Gullane yeah. is what the posh people up the hill call it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, what age then did you move to North Berwick? Four. So I did all my school there. Yeah. yeah. And uh, it, it's kind of like, obviously, music became of a, an interest to you because that's been your career. When, when did you first... Uh, well, I mean, I say in the book, it, it wasn't through school that I learned to like music because we had such punitive music lessons. Yeah. Um, I mean, there's a whole Billy Connolly routine about that, about singing Mary's Wedding and stuff. We sang Mary's Wedding and the Banana Boat song, Endlessly, and we did this thing where you had to do with the piano, is the first note higher or lower than the next note? And we just had no clue what that was about. And um, but as punk happened, so much later on, we got us. There was a kind of supply teacher who came to the school, and he brought a record player and put it in the school hall, and said, "You can bring in records." Um, so I'd picked up a couple of punk records. My brother had gone to university in Edinburgh, and he had brought the news home. You know, yeah. and we used to buy the music papers. So we all brought in records, and um, it was just completely weird being allowed to play punk records in the school um after a couple of weeks it's back to the banana boat song but you know <laughs> the seed was sown you know so what, what was the first record that you bought it, it, it is in the book the first one ever yeah uh, well uh, yeah topical it was gary glitter <laughs> i'm the leader of the gang i am um I mean, less said about Gary Glitter, the better. I, I remember um, hearing Gary Glitter on Radio Luxembourg, um, and, and this is quite a seedy memory now, but because you know Radio Luxembourg used to f fade in and out all the time like that. Yeah. So there was this thing where I think his record was like the power play, which was on every hour. And you've got to remember, it wasn't easy to hear records in those days. There was no streaming. Um, I don't, I'm not sure if even Radio 1 went into the evenings. I'm, I can't remember. I think it did. Did it? Yeah. Okay, well... well it stopped at a, a certain time, didn't it? At night yeah, time. yeah. I mean, it must have later for John Peel and all that. Yeah. But but Gary Glitter was on, and there was this competition to win his sweat-stained shirt. And so I'm sitting in the living room thinking, <laughs> oh, I could win Gary Glitter's sweat-stained shirt. And my parents, you know, being moral citizens, were tutting away. And yeah. And it makes me... A bit creeped out to think about it now. But we we were in the seventies. We we were presented with music via Top of the Pops and you know certain. That was roughly it. Yeah, left off with Asia. I remember. I don't know if you remember that. I don't remember that. No, what was that? It was on at like 
half past four or something like that and uh, there was a pop band on it and uh, probably I don't know about the chronology but there was also that Flintlock series do you remember yeah, that? Yeah I remember Flintlock yeah. The sort of strange manufactured band yeah um, was Pauline Quirk on that? I think she, she was, was yeah. and she persuaded them to perform naked I seem to remember did she? yeah <laughs> But so, it was, so it was very sparse, you know, the information yeah. was very sparse. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that's the thing I pick up in the book is we got all the news from the, from the music papers and I bought sounds, my brother bought the NME, we sometimes bought the Melody Maker. Yeah. But also, we both kept scrapbooks and I got these from a loft a couple of years ago. And there's all these magazines you've completely forgotten about, like hits magazines, probably for girls, but I didn't really notice. Um, so you know you've got Slade posters and Mark Bowen posters and all of that um, also Disco 45 I remember do you remember it was, yeah. had lyrics in it and getting the lyrics was like a kind of bit of secret information Yeah. so terrible magazine but here are the lyrics you yeah. know so we found it wherever we could find it really I think yeah but that was, it was still coming through the, 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 the pop thing so yeah you know kind of like punk for me, even even though I'd, I'd seen punk and I was aware of punk, it wasn't until I moved to Scotland in the summer of eight seventy eight that you couldn't escape it. It was everywhere. Yeah, because it happened a little bit later in Scotland. But yeah. I mean, punk proper. You know, I mean, I can remember. I think, I think, um, might be wrong. I think Susie and the Banshees played in Edinburgh at Clouds in seventy seven if that's the right year I was there at that like I was allowed to go to that yeah um, a lot of people say the White Riot tour um, was the big kind of year zero moment in Scotland yeah. yeah and those same people now claim that they were totally into the subway sect and not so into the clash because that's a bit cool and well, the Slits played as well the Slits they? did play and, I mean I love I love all the bands the Buzzcocks as well yeah um, the Jam were on that too I was a big Jam fan which um is a bit less cool these days, I think. But, but you know, the Jam were my band. My brother was in the Clash, so you couldn't afford many records. So if one of yeah. you bought one and the other one bought the other one, you had more. You know? Yeah. The one thing that I do remember, you know, when I moved to Scotland, was how many good record shops Edinburgh had. Yeah, yeah. You know, did you make your, your your trip up to Edinburgh regular? It wouldn't be that regular because I didn't have much money. But yeah. when I had money, so when you. You would have enough money for an album, which I can't remember, it was like three pounds or something yeah. like that. Um, I would spend a day in Edinburgh, and that day was a circuit um, where you would get off the train and there'd be like a square that you would walk around, which is like two or three miles long. Yeah. But there were a lot of them on the, on the um, north side of Princess Street. So there was um, Bruce's records, Bruce, who became manager of Simple Minds, yeah. did Zoom records with the Valves. Yeah. yeah. Um, so Bruce's was a big shop. There was a shop called Hell where the bag said, I got it at Hell. Yeah. How long did that last for? Because I, I don't remember that. I know the name. I don't know. I don't know. It was there. It was there for a while. Yeah. Um, there was also the other record shop. I think the other record shop was where I bought my first punk record, which was the Dan's Neat Neat Neat. Yeah. Um, that was down off the Royal Mile. Yeah. Um, that was a great shop because it was big, but it had the... Uh, the upstairs section which was yeah, a yeah. great meeting place and yeah, yeah. that's where they had the singles and the t-shirts yeah. and the games machines 
did, yeah. And Hot Wax was another one in Coburn Street. Yeah. Which had the singles in the window. Yeah. So you could stand and stare at the window in a yeah. meaningful way. And there was Phoenix as well, which was a bit more hippie-ish. Where was Phoenix? I think it was in the High Street. It was like a street up from Hot Wax. Right, okay. And it was a bit more, it smelled of patchouli and hippies. Yeah, yeah. So, but, you know, they did have punk stuff, but they had long hairs in there. And Easy Rider was the furthest away yeah. of that, which was part of the, um, what was it called? The Mark Greyfriars Market. Yeah. So it smelled heavily of denim in yeah. there. Yeah. And had famously the rudest staff in the whole world. So. <laughs> but it was a great place to get second-hand records no, in, in the, the early 80s. You know, when I, I did move to Edinburgh in 83, I'd go yeah. in there once a month. And you'd see things that you wouldn't see anywhere else. Well. They had millions. I mean, I've, I've had conversations like this because I used to go in. Obviously, you weren't there all that often, but I used to want to find Velvet Underground records and it was impossible. Now, I've since met people who said they found them in there. I never <laughs> found them in there. Um, but I did get... Uh, I used to nervously ask for bootlegs as well and they would look at you like you were the police. You know, kind of, <laughs> but I did get the Buzzcocks times up in there. So I think Gordon, the drummer of the Valves... Yeah. Um, used to work in there, so he was a friendly face too. So. Yeah, and there was ripping records as well, if you remember that one. Yeah, 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 rip, ripping on the bridges where yeah. you got all the tickets. Yeah, yeah. and they, they did uh, second hand singles upstairs, yeah. you know, that you'd occasionally you'd find something that you wanted. You yeah, know. there's probably others, you know. Um, but there but was in, in 78 specifically, because, you know, 78, mid, the end of 78, 79 was really, you know, when I started buying records. and. The, you 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 would have the other record shop, but you'd do the triangle on Frederick Street at that point, yeah. where you had Bruce's on Rose Street. Yeah. You had Virgin on the corner. Yeah. Uh, just round the corner from Bruce's on Frederick Street, and then opposite you had Listen Records. That's right. Yeah. And for a teenage kind of like punk rocker, having Big John serving behind the counter was yeah, always yeah. A, a big thing to go in and uh, to to spot him and have a chat. See, I was probably not there at that point. I. Because I went to Aberdeen University in 79. Yeah. And there's a shop called One Up there, which was the great shop in Aberdeen. Yeah. They had two branches, but in the one on Rosemount Viaduct, where I bought um, Joy Division Records and stuff like that, there was a guy called Scars, who was a bit like Big John. He yeah. was like, just a scary punk. <laughs> he didn't say much, but he looked the part, you know? Yeah. <laughs> so it's kind of like when punk... You know, obviously went through different phases and stages, you know, kind of like in, in 76, 77, you had all the bands bringing through and a lot of people really dropped punk, in, particularly in Edinburgh, you know, from 78 onwards and, yeah, you know, musically things changed. Well, yeah, for me, actually, the musical part happens after punk because the kind of Ramalama thing of yeah. punk. Well, I, I shouldn't be embarrassed. I'm a little bit embarrassed by some of the stuff I did during the punk time but it's actually because it was all there was so you know we used to run buses up from North Berwick to the concerts in Edinburgh yeah because you couldn't get back otherwise yeah. so the only way to do it was you got like 30 people from the school to go on a bus yeah so we saw people like the Buzzcocks and Blondie and stuff like that yeah um, but we did see Sham 69 I think twice in that okay. in that era and I was at Coasters what, they did the audience, I'm pretty sure, as well, yeah. Um, but I vividly remember being on the bus yeah. and having this argument about some, with somebody about because they were on top of the pops and Jimmy Percy's wearing a clean white shirt that this was, <laughs> they were finished, you know. <laughs> it was too clean. I went to see them the end of last year. 
which was probably the best sign that I saw them because they didn't do all the hits. Oh really? Yeah. What did so they do instead? They just some of the lesser known songs from the first two two albums, you know, which were it just made it a bit more interesting than yeah going uh, going down the classics route. Well, yeah. the kids of United, they play that at West Ham. I go and see West Ham. They yeah. play that quite often. It's like such a bad record. <laughs> so, did you get into football? You must have got into football then. I know you did because it's in the book. Yeah, well, that football um, around that period, I sort of got out of it because it became horrible. You know, yeah. my, my dad used to take me to see Hibs, right. although I support Celtic for complete glory hunting reasons. Yeah. And West Ham because that's where I was born. Right, yeah. Also Brecon City because my grandparents were from there, so it's a complicated <laughs> business. <laughs> um, but uh, when I went to Aberdeen, I used to naively I wore a Celtic scarf in Aberdeen for a very short time, and I just got such dogs abuse from yeah. people in the street um, yeah. and threatened with violence that I thought, oh, this this isn't the thing. So consequently, I, I was there for Aberdeen's triumphant kind of European yeah. Alex Ferguson period but yeah. I never went to any of the games yeah. I used to hear the crowd and I, yeah. I kind of wish I hadn't been put off because it would have been interesting but. I, I, we, we moved up to 78 and then that's I was I was 11 and I, I love football you know I played it and uh, I went to three football matches and I just I, I, it didn't gel with me you know I, it, I found that the football was quite great you know, it was just Scottish football Scottish skill football. levels. Yeah, it, it, and then <laughs> this is somebody who's watching Middlesbrough play, which is probably not the most exciting team in the world. Yeah, but yeah. it was more exciting. It seemed more exciting, and also, you know, where you live is quite important. Living in Livingston, getting to yeah, Edinburgh, yeah. Or getting to Glasgow at the age of eleven, twelve was not the easiest thing to do. Yeah, you know, it was all. It always seemed quite hard to work out how to do it as well. Yeah. But you know. But it was a time where where it was violent and horrible. I think you know. Having said that, I got beaten up twice in Aberdeen. I got beaten up in my first week in Aberdeen. Uh, first time I went out was to see the advert at the right. university. Yeah. And, and so I was walking home, and got jumped and kicked in. You know, it's like welcome. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you you did a fanzine as well, did you when you were at school? Yeah. Well. It's a slightly tedious story. I did one when I was in like primary seven, which was a revolutionary publishing model where I drew it with felt pen, okay. and there was only one copy, but you could rent it. <laughs> okay. So it was That's like, great marketing. It was like two p. Yeah, yeah. And then if you give it to everyone in the class, you got sixty p. So. <laughs> so that was the first one, and then I did a sort of inspired by sniffing glue and all of that. I did one at um, high school called Blow Your Nose on This which um, is kind of embarrassing, but it was a, yeah. it wasn't, it was a go at doing something. Yeah. And, and uh, my friend Ian, who was in my band, The Commercials, his mum photocopied it at the Ben Sears Golf Club factory where she worked at her lun- in her lunch break. So. <laughs> well, how, how, did you, how did you produce it then? Did you, was it uh, cut and paste? Uh, yeah, yeah, it was just a, a did I have cowgum? I might have had cowgum. We I did a school magazine where we kind of did it ourselves, so we pasted it all ourselves um, to save money, and it was consequently a bit of a mess. But but they gave us cowgum and paste up boards, so yeah. I kind of had a slight knowledge of how to do that. Yeah. Um, but it was just cut out and stuck on paper and photocopied. So 
So is it fair to say then that that's what you wanted to do at an age, become a, a journalist, a, a writer? Yeah. yeah, I always wanted to be a journalist. Um, they had a careers night at school, probably like fourth year or something like that, and I said I wanted to be a journalist, and the guy said, you're too intelligent, you can't, <laughs> you can't be a journalist, because you only needed five O grades to be a journalist, because yeah. it was like a craft thing, and then you would go to Napier College and all that. Um, so I was a bit lost after that, but I never gave up on the idea. But yeah. I just, it, journalism is one of those jobs where it's not clear how to become one. There isn't a, I mean, there are a lot of courses now. There weren't so many courses then, but yeah. um, even if you do courses, it's it's all about um, brass neck, really, and breaking in that way. So I got there eventually. Yeah. So then you, 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 you did your own grades, and then Scottish hires. Yeah, yeah, I did hires and um, and I did six year where you do you do not very much, which is to train you to be a student where you're going to not do very much for a while. Okay. And then, <laughs> um, so yeah, I went to Aberdeen and did politics at Aberdeen. Um, around that time, my band, the Commercials. Yeah. I should say not my band. I sound like Mick Jagger, but <laughs> the band I was in um, crossed over from the end of school to university and stuff yeah um which wasn't a good career move because we were all in different places and consequently couldn't practice or play you know? yeah but you but you did release a single yeah yeah how, how did you do that because that, that's you know that, i think that was one thing if i'd have known back then in the early 80s how to make a record i, I should have done yeah the bands that i was involved with well, I mean, there was a lot of it about... I can't actually remember who knew. It was probably Ian, the guitarist. Ian's brother is Dave Anderson, who was in Amundul 2 and Hawkwind, briefly. Yeah. Um, they were the first band I saw in 1979. Hawkwind? Yeah, oh. at the, uh, the Usher Hall. Wow, <laughs> wow. Well, well, Dave runs a studio, he still runs it, called Fall in Wales. Okay. And it's the second oldest residential place in Britain or possibly the world I can't remember but all the rough trade bands used to go there so Young Marble Giants yeah. and Delta 5 uh, it was sort of a studio for them and so we had a way of making a reasonable quality tape um, I'm not sure I guess Ian probably knew how to do the record part as well and the pressing and all yeah. that His, he, he was in a splinter band who I think released a single first the first band we were in was called The Instant Whips, yeah. and then they got a bit more musical, so they booted me out as a singer <laughs> and got somebody who could sing a bit better. So they became The Whips, and The Whips had quite a big following in East Lothian with okay. bikers. It was a biker ba gra a biker gang called the Bader Meinhof okay. out of Haddington. Yeah. And so they had a big following, and they used to play in Edinburgh quite a lot, and they produced a record, which I co-wrote one of the songs on the b-side so that was my claim to fame <laughs> there was quite a big mod scene in in, in edinburgh a bit later sorry in east Lothian, a bit later on was there yeah where about uh you sure it wasn't just golf jumpers no uh, I'm, I'm forgetting my, my, my east Lothian location just at the top just before you get into musclebrook all right, okay. There was quite a few Northern Soul events. What, Preston Pans. And Preston Pans, around there. Port Seaton, yeah. kind of Trenent. Yeah, Trenent. 
Yeah, you know. Uh, but he, he so he, because I think around about then rough trade there was a, a a broker that came about called Making. So they 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 were brokering quite a lot of the pressing the records into yeah, yeah. Uh, into MPO. You know. I do remember we. I mean, we sent off the tape. Yeah. Which is in the book actually. We and this is awful. I don't know how we thought this would work, but you know we duplicate them ourselves on kind of crap cassette players and we made you know we screwed the tapes together ourselves and then we wrote on them and stuff I mean the quality was really terrible yeah uh, but we sent them off and I sent one off to Johnny Waller who was like an influential yeah. Edinburgh journalist at that time he wrote for yeah. sounds yeah managed some bands um and he wrote back and you know mixed comments but he wrote back um and he, he was a nice fella yeah, I'd, I'd spent a bit of time in his company. Yeah, I mean, yeah. he was quite important at that time, yeah. I think. Yeah, because he was joined on to other places. But I, I do have still in a box. I've got a note I got back from Rough Trade going. You know, thanks for sending your tape. Sorry, it's taking so long. Um, we quite like it, but we don't want to do anything with it. But have you considered doing it yourselves? And at the time, I took that as encouragement. Now yeah. I take it as polite go away. <laughs> or a sales opportunity. Possibly, yeah. You now no, we can make it happen for you. You know. Well, and they did, they did take the record, and our record did appear in the Rough Trade advert, which right. is like, yeah, know, yeah. I may still yeah. make that into a T-shirt, you know. Because, yeah. you know, we're, we're next to bands like Felt and Joseph K and things like that. So yeah. it felt like it was worth it, you know. Were they doing the distribution at that point, or...? I think a lot of it came through um, Fast Forward, which was sort of an offshoot of Fast. Yeah. I think it was in Alva Street. No, it wasn't Alva Street. It was Cadzo Place. Oh, I don't know. Somewhere like that. Yeah. Um, so they, you know, they knew how to do it in Scotland. They became, Fast Forward became a very influential thing. Yeah. I'm not quite sure of the chronology of when that happened, but, yeah. but it grew from that. Yeah. Yeah. So there was a way in Scotland of, of getting that done. And later on, Fast Forward was really important for a lot of the kind of C86 type bands and all yeah. that. Yeah. So did you did you keep any copies of the, the single? Because they're worth a bit of money now. <laughs> well, I'm having a look on Discogs. Well, Discogs, the funny thing is, like, they go up to, six, I've seen 65, 75 quid. Yeah. I've never met anyone that paid that, but somebody must have at some point. Yeah. Um, we had a few boxes left. And when my mum was clearing out, she threw them out because she wasn't very impressed by them. So it's a bit annoying. I've got a few copies, but um, I don't know. I can't imagine. I just think it's a theoretical value. I don't, I don't, know, I don't know if there's a queue of people waiting to buy it. A lot, a lot of it depends on the quality. So if you've got a mint mint record, then some people will pay top of the range. Yeah, know, yeah. You know, but the... I tend, if I look at discogs, you generally look at the medium prices, the uh, the, the going rate. I have bought very few things off there, but I did buy. Um, I wanted a proper copy of the Valves uh, single. Yeah. Because I'd lost mine, and I, I bought that, and it was supposed to be VG condition and all that. And it was totally wrecked when I got it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's. Uh, there's some dealers on there that uh, are probably not so trustworthy. Yeah. You know. But I encourage people to buy it if they see it. You know, it's definitely an investment. <laughs> so you, you moved, so when did you move to Aberdeen? 79. 79, and you were there for? 
I was there for five years. Okay. Um, degree was four, and there was no jobs. So at that point, um, my girlfriend Jane, at that time, was also in the commercials. She was a year behind, so she was working at the university, or rather was studying at university. And I, I did this thing, which was a kind of scam of the university, where they said you could enrol for first year courses for like 75 quid or something like that. So okay. you were technically part of the university. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, you could go to some lectures, which for me meant I could edit the student paper. Okay. Because I was sort of a student. Um, yeah. I mean, it was terrible. I, found, I did Russian literature and I gave it, I stopped going after a while because part of Russian literature was, here is a map of Russia. Can you now put Tolstoy's birthplace on this map? And I thought, no, I, I want to be alienated. I want to be reading Penguin Modern Classics. <laughs> so then, for, from, from Aberdeen, when did the band split up then? Because the single came out, I'm trying to remember, I'd say 81. Yeah, I'd probably get it wrong. We were, I think we were supposed to be big in 81, according to Dave McCulloch and Sounds. Okay, yeah, yeah. Um, the other band he mentioned was Felt. So... Uh, they didn't become big either, but they became bigger than us. Um, so I think it probably came out in 81. Yeah. Um, we were sort of done by then, really. I mean, it's one of those weird things that you kind of could get together to make the recordings and stuff like that. But um, one of the band was in Glasgow, one was in North Berwick, two of us were in Aberdeen at certain points. We had exploding drummers, so we never had a drummer. Yeah. You know? um, so it wasn't really, I mean, I look back now and you think, well, if you wanted to make a go of it, you would actually just have to spend some time yeah. doing it. Yeah. But we just had this kind of hobby feeling to it where we thought, you know, there's, there's little moments where you go, oh, that was one of those moments where if you'd reacted the right way, yeah. like we, we played in Glasgow. I actually found a tape of this, which I didn't know existed when I was clearing out my mum's house and... So there's live tape, and I've played it down, and I've thought, well, we must have been shit. And I'd listened to this live tape, I quite liked it. I thought, yeah. oh, and listen, applause. I didn't know there was applause, and people shouting for an encore. Yeah. Um, and that, I think that was at Ross Hall in Glasgow. And at that, somebody came up to us and said, you should come to the Hellfire Club um, and yeah. practice and stuff like that. And that was a really important place for bands in Glasgow. Yeah. We weren't in Glasgow, so we couldn't do it. But, you know, it's like, oh, there's little junctions where, like, yeah. you might have been able to do something. The opposite of that is the time we went to the Postcard Records flat to play our tape to them. So we just knocked on the door. We didn't make an appointment. Did we? Okay. We just went. <laughs> yeah. And there was Alan Horn. And uh, opinions vary. I think it was Stephen Daly. Some people say it was Edwin that was in there. I don't think Edwin was there. Yeah. I think Stephen was there. Um, and there was like two rooms as far as I remember and Alan Horn was very Alan Hornish and so he played the thing played the tape and we were sat cringing as he played the tape and he said you sound like the au pairs <laughs> and um, I was like oh okay <laughs> we'll get our coats <laughs> we weren't done so that never came off no no so did, have you got any recordings that you, you didn't release? Yeah, yeah, I've I've got a CD which I can give you, which um, the 
I don't know if you know about Mesthetics, which was yeah. a guy called Chuck in Chicago who ran a label called Hyped to Death. Okay. So he did this thing for a few years where it's like the nuggets of post-punk. Yeah. So he he was, he, I think he worked in a record shop at one point. So he was of the view that the creative part of punk was post-punk. Right, yeah. Where all the rules had been broken. People yeah. didn't know what they were doing. Yeah. So they did really weird stuff. Yeah. And nobody tutored them or anything, and strange things happened. So he collected those records, and he put out a series of quite a lot of CDs. Yeah. Um, and he did one for Scotland. I've got in my bag there, which I'll give you. Um, okay. Um, he did one for Scotland, and the commercials are on there. And so he said, "Have you got any stuff?" Now, I always thought. I'm not sure if this is true, but I always thought the stuff we did just after the single, yeah, which we did in a Porter studio, was slightly more interesting but it's on the cusp of weirdness because it's Depeche Mode I know half the band was really into Depeche Mode at right, that point okay, yeah. so we got a Casio keyboard like yeah. the really cheap ones that yeah. were on that record Da 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 so there's one tune like that which has one of those presets which depends on how much you like that thing but it's got lovely guitar and stuff like that yeah I'm not. I don't want to oversell it because you know it's still got the same reservations about it as everything else. But, but yeah, there's there's a hidden track on there. There's a track from the record, I think, and then there's a sort of hidden track. So yeah, yeah. No, he's he's you know he's. Uh, I think in this day and age, he's kind of like finding music that's not being released that has a quality. Yeah, you know, is is a good thing. You know. Well, I mean, it's in, even if it's only historical, because you go. What did things sound like then? They yeah. don't sound like you think they sound. You know, the eighties were not like everyone thinks the eighties were all about wham and yeah. kind of loads of money and all yeah. that. Yeah. Well, that was kind of a London image of the eighties. Yeah. For 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 me, you know, and everyone I knew, the eighties was about not having a job and having no prospect of a job. Yeah. And signing on, but maybe being on one of these government schemes, schemes yeah. Yeah. that let you do weird stuff. Yeah. And not punish you yeah and that's how you you know creation records came out of that primal scream came out of that you know yeah because they were given a license to fool around yeah. for a bit yeah um, so i don't want to give the thatcher government too much credit but you know there was a strange loophole there where good things were allowed to yeah prosper well as now nowadays it's difficult to to be creative and finance yourself if yeah. you know, if you 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 can't sign on and do little and uh, get your band and you know work your band until uh, you get on top of the pops. It's sort of totally different the economics now because yeah. anyone 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 can record on a Mac or something like that because yeah. you can get that stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, whereas recording was semi mysterious. Yeah. When I was growing up, um, Porter Studios were coming in making it sort of plausible, but. But it was still a kind of thing you had to do with professionals if you wanted to do it properly. You know? Yeah. So you 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 then from Aberdeen moved to Edinburgh. Was that eighty four? Yeah, eighty four. I would say. And, and you got a, a, a funny job as a as an editor, or the, the way you got it was uh, <laughs> a, a bit of a, a bit of a strange one. Well, I, in Edinburgh, I used to go to the place called the Unemployed Workers Centre, which was a really good place. Where was that? It was on Picardy Place, yeah, yeah. roundabout in a basement. Um, the Trades Council was above, yeah. 
and symbolically, I think the Trades Council is now a casino, so this kind of working class yeah. temple got turned into a casino. But in the basement, um, we used to just hang around and they sort of taught us video and stuff like that. Yeah. Um, and it was semi-political, like they kind of gave us a tenor to occupy the Conservative Party headquarters for the morning and stuff like that, you know, that's kind of... But I'd done the fanzine at that point and they were really keen and they encouraged me to kind of keep going at the fanzine. So someday I kind of met, I think through that, told me there was this job going on in Pilton at the... Uh, it was called The Commune at that point, the paper, but they were relaunching the community newspaper in Pilton um, under a European unemployment scheme through Lothian Regional Council. So again, it was one of these yeah. strange schemes. And the qualification for the job was not experience or um, competence. It was that you had to be unemployed for six months. And I'd been unemployed for 18 months or two years or something like that. So yeah. I was super qualified. <laughs> <laughs> so I went down there and there was a, because it was a community thing, it was in the one of the huts at Purney Hall Primary School. Yeah. And it was like a, so you, a, a room big enough for a primary class and there was like 18 people in the circle because it was the whole community group was sitting there yeah. and then I was put on the chair there oh. to do this interview. Yeah. And, you know, I sort of stumbled my way through it. But I got the job. Um, but my friend subsequently told me that there was only two candidates and the other guy turned up drunk. So, <laughs> <laughs> so by default. Yeah. Well, quite quite shortly after that uh, would be when uh, Cook was launched in Edinburgh. So that that in my it was either the end of eighty four or the beginning of eighty five. Yeah, I'm not sure about when it launched, but for me, I used to. What came for me was I used to freelance for the NME. Yeah. In that period, um, doing concert reviews and little things for the thrills section. Yeah. And out of the fanzine. Um, I had met James Brown, now the famous James Brown. I know James. Of Loaded and all that. And so he, he stayed at my flat um, in Polworth Gardens one time when he was up with Big Flame because he was just yeah. digging around with Big Flame. Yeah. yeah. And we, I, I really don't know how we met him or stuff, but he ended up at our flat. And um, But, you know, he was very nice. And he, I've got a letter from him where he sort of says, oh, if you want to do writing jamming's a thing you could write for jamming yeah for and, Tony yeah yeah and stuff like that so I did bits for Tony P Fletcher yeah I was pretty crap at it like I did Alone Again Or um, who became the shaman and you know I was too shy so I interviewed the drummer rather than the singer <laughs> so I got a terse letter back going you do not interview the drummer <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was sort of getting into music journalism like that so yeah. I used to go to these I had this sort of routine where I would be sent to things. There was really good shows like Tom Waits and people like that, where I'd be sent to the show and you'd have to write it overnight. But there was no faxes or anything like that. Yeah. So I'd have to type it overnight. So I'd be up till three writing it. Yeah. Like the show finishes at 12 or 1 or something and go back to my flat, write it. And then I had to meet the photographer at the station for the, I think it was 5.50 train, something like that. Yeah. So you'd have to go back to the station with your typed review and he would put his photos on the red star yeah to get there for the next day and they'd appear I and mean, it seems mad and it also seems mad that i would do that for quite a small amount of money but yeah. getting into the show was yeah exciting so 
so that led to ultimately to um i wrote for cut not for maybe the first year of cut's existence but yeah when cut became less just scottish yeah you because know, it was yeah, purely um, scottish at first and yeah. then then it branched out yeah and alan campbell became the editor i was more involved then yeah um and it was a strange amazing bizarre little experiment but it was yeah a lot of really talented people came out of there yeah so. I think Edinburgh at that point had a lot of inspirational yeah. people, events going on. Yeah, you know that's uh, and it's always been a, a a city that's inspired. You know, even if you go back to the basic rollers, you know, yeah. there, there, there were there were things going on that uh, might not have happened in other cities. Well, I think so. I mean, it's kind of. Alan Campbell who did Cut I mean he yeah. put on all these shows at the Hoochie Coochie Club yeah. um, which was Sam yeah and Sam yeah. yeah and and that was amazing also a very cool club yeah um, but there were other you know coasters and um, Tiffany's you know great venues for small bands yeah. to play yeah which aren't there anymore yeah um, and the nightclub because that, that was the nightclub that, was you amazing, know, when, when yeah. the nightclub was putting on punk gigs as a as a teenager, you know, that was that was a go-to place for me no, until the, they got banned, I think, 82. No, the nightclub was amazing. and It, yeah. was, it was just a square room, wasn't it? I, yeah. I saw I saw Nico in there. I took pictures of Nico in there <laughs> yeah. with the Cuban Heels as her band, you know, yeah. which was actually terrible, but I saw her. Um, and I saw Orange Juice, or one of the big postcard nights in there was great. And also I remember seeing The Fall in there and we were queuing to get in. And Marky e. Smith came in with his anorak on and his lyrics in a plastic bag. You know? <laughs> Going back to what, what you were saying about when you interviewed, how, how do you set out to do an interview? You know, because for me, I try and start at the beginning, but I'll 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 work my way around it with regards yeah. to where where you're led. I suppose. I mean, there's a couple of things about that. I mean, subsequently after the music, that I became a kind of features journalist so I was doing interviews every week and music interviews and general interviews are slightly different like right. musicians are the worst people to interview because they think they're cool and they yeah. don't have to say anything and, and yeah. humiliating you is part of the process yeah so that's hard um for general interviews uh you know I always think the best ones are where you where you have a set of questions that you've made in an order but you never look at them because yeah you managed to have a conversation and you followed it and you were interested enough yeah that's a success um but you kind of have to have an an idea of what you're looking for you know and yeah. try and i always sort of keep it in my head of okay is this does this answer that question you know? yeah but i found actually for quite a lot of the interviews i did i was just saying why do you do it and how do you do it <laughs> yeah yeah, I, I did a fanzine when I was fourteen. I did a few, and uh, I, look, I look at the questions now, and I'm like, oh, oh. no, no, uh, I know. It, it was called a way of life, but it was a punk fanzine. Yeah. You know, you you have a lot of it. You know, kind of like is dependent on where you live, and we, we lived in Livingston up until '83. So my music, you know, you kind of like if you got into punk '78, '79, you had to buy signs because they were the only magazine yeah. paper that was writing about punk. Yeah. Uh, 
and you couldn't escape it in Livingston, you know, where they seem to grab hold of it for a lot longer than, say, yeah. Edinburgh yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. and, and Glasgow. Uh, but then we moved to Ed, uh, Edinburgh in 83 and my musical taste started to change because the city was, there was a different vibe in Edinburgh. And uh, six months later, I ended up in Manchester for a year and that's when hip hop and electro was bursting through. So yeah. you... you yeah, your your location, your social conditioning is really you know where, where your musical tastes. Yeah, but it's also good that that time was so fluid. So yeah. you, you liked all that stuff, yeah. you know. Yeah. Because I I used to DJ at a place called the Flesh Exchange in Aberdeen. Right. And that was it was like Africa Bambata, yeah. Working week. Yeah. Uh, you know, punk things and and kind of Northern Soul things and Talking yeah. Heads. Yeah. staple singers you know you just threw it all together yeah time zone you know you just yeah. kind of yeah but that, that i think that was the the thing about the late 70s and the early 80s there was so much music that was happening that it was and open. it would change quite yeah. fast quite quickly it, you it know it was open and you had to keep yeah. up with it yeah yeah you know um so did you did you uh, did you become did you work for the scotsman yeah, I worked for the Scotsman for a long time. Um, I worked for Scotland on Sunday first for a few years, and then the Scotsman. Um, they've sort of blurred now in my mind, but yeah, fifteen years or something like that—a long yeah. time, anyway. I can't yeah. remember exactly, but yeah. And, and what made you move to London? Um, well, my partner got a job down here, so um, it was just a life thing, you know. Uh, has hasn't been great for my career really because it's you know it's harder to be in the London papers but yeah um but interesting different life yeah but then when when did did the book come out a year ago yeah almost no it's just under a year ago it came out yeah and the book is called give you the key hang on it's called (laughs) alternatives to valium how punk rock saved a shy boy's life (laughs) so when because you've done it in two two different chapters so yeah you, you, the second half is the the fanzine stage yeah and, and, the, and the first later, yeah. yeah the first is really part of your your growing up and your, your experiences yeah i mean the, the way i looked at it was it was like finding a voice and then using a voice yeah and, and actually or actually learning to listen i decided because um i became a prompt rather than a performer you know i was i thought i could be a punk singer but actually, I could use my voice, but you know, it wasn't very pleasant on the ear. So then, learn to listen was yeah. my thing. But yeah, I, I wanted to. I want. I'm not sure people um, picked up what I was trying to do with the book. But the the second part of it, I was trying to kind of explore something about celebrity journalism and what what the process was and how that slightly differed from what historical versions of things become like. Yeah. Like, for instance, there's a piece about Nirvana in there where I was sent to interview Nirvana at the Cotton Studios in Edinburgh. Yeah. And it was just at the moment where they had just gone through the stratosphere. So they're playing in a venue far too small. And Kurt was very ill and wasn't going to go on and all that. And I was, so instead of speaking to Kurt, I was put in a broom cupboard with a microwave and Chris Novoselic. And he spoke to me for 20 minutes and then he disappeared. He went out and left me locked, not locked, but shut in this covered waiting for him. He never came back. So I went out and um, 
sure enough, there they were kind of reviving Kurt in another room to make him go out and perform, like getting him on his feet. Yeah. And he played. And in Legend, that's an in, that's a legendary show where it's fantastic. It wasn't. It was a painful, yeah, difficult show. There are recordings of it, so people can make their own mind up. But it was kind of brutal, you know, incredible that he went through it, but painful to watch kind of experience. Um, but the legend is a bit different, and yeah. also the legend of what Nirvana are is totally different. Like, so I went back and I went, well, what? What, what were all the things Chris Novoselic said to me? What was it like? Yeah. And it's not as kind of, it's not like a big difference. He just thinks he's slightly different from the big hair metal kids. Yeah. But he doesn't actually have any material difference from them. He just thinks he's a bit different. And, you know, everyone has drawn Nirvana into this argument where they were a totally different thing. But they weren't. They were stoner kids from the Northwest who yeah. were into heavy records. Yeah. And a lot of that sub pop stuff was like a different version of yeah. heavy rock. Yeah. It wasn't a, you know, it had a punk attitude, but it wasn't a kind of massive change. Yeah. Uh, so I was just trying to present the thing as it was at the time and go, look, that's what it looked like. A bit like we were saying about when you find old music. Yeah. It's actually from a period you can go, oh, that's what it really sounded like. It's not like I imagined. You know? Yeah. So I was trying to just capture things as they actually were rather than the myth of what they were. You know? Yeah. And Finney Tribe challenged you on a review once, didn't F they? Finney Tribe, God bless them. <laughs> well, they weren't the only ones, actually. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Finney Tribe, I was walking through, I'd reviewed Finney Tribe for the NME, I think. Right. Um, and it was their most arty period where they were I, I saw them at the Carlton Studios once and I think that was they, the one they were very arty where they were climbing up on the scaffolding yeah 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 but there was, if you remember there was a they had a poet I can't remember his name and one of our friends got up behind behind the poet and started playing the <laughs> drums just mad and he was there for about five minutes before they got him off stage and right. we were just I approve of that that's good yeah, that. <laughs> But well, anyway, you know, they were sort yeah. of like that. And they, they, used Very to, arty. they used to talk about art terrorism. So yeah. I, I always thought that was complete nonsense to talk about art terrorism. Yeah. You know, you can't, they're not the same thing. Um, and it's embarrassing. And but So I'd written this thing and I was walking through Princess Street Gardens one day and saw the Finney tribe coming towards me and they're quite a forbidding looking bunch of guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and they stood in a circle around me and said, we're just discussing your review and what we thought of it and I thought oh no I'm done for him. <laughs> but they sort of they took it on and yeah. they, they forgive me because they were thoughtful guys Yeah. and um, Davy of the Finney tribe has subsequently said that he thinks I was right to say what I said so yeah. Yeah. Um, another band that stopped me was Good and Gone I don't know if you remember them I don't remember them where um, were they from? they were from Glenrothes okay um, and they were a kind of Captain Beefhearty yeah, kind of blues band. Um, quite good. They did their album, mini album was called Methyl Box. So, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but I reviewed them and met them in the Doric Tavern. And yeah, I know the Doric. My sister used to work there. Yeah, and so I was forcefully told that I had made a mistake. I put it that way. <laughs> 
But it's kind of like the, the way that I see it, it's just it's subjective, isn't it? You know, it's kind of like well, there's no rights or wrongs, and it's better to have an opinion than not to have an opinion. No, I know. I think yeah. the thing I think now, looking back on some of that writing and even on my fanzine, yeah, is that thing about music writing in that period was so sneering, and the writer was always trying to be more cynical and more yeah. on top of it all. Yeah, and I definitely had that, and I mean, I wasn't impressed by some bands. Yeah. And then I would do the kind of sneery NME writing. Yeah. And they would be kind of upset, you know. Yeah. And now I think, why was it, why did I? And it's because you had to be declamatory. So if you write, they're quite good, you yeah. know, they've, they've got a bit of room for room. Well, nobody's going to no, run that. <laughs> but, but that's, that's, you know, you, you understand the, the old uh, that I got, you realise that sounds in the NME had to be different from each other. Yeah, and you, you have to have the the, the 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 complete opposites, and you have to have that war in order to make it an interesting read. Yeah, yeah. And it's the same thing with doing a review. It's you know you you, you can't do everything happy, happy, happy. Well, you're always reacting to things. You know, yeah. I mean, it, I mean, another person who objected was Harry Horse, who was in Swamp Trash. Okay, I remember him? Yeah. He became an author and died subsequently, but. He was a cartoonist on Scotland on Sunday, so I used to see him in the office now and then. And uh, one time I happened to be sitting near him and he just looked over to me and he went, hmm, you ruined my career. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, oh, how, how'd you get that? And he said, oh, we got a 10, a 10 out of 10 album review. Yeah. And then you did a live review and said we were shit. And I said, well, you can't, it can't have been much of a career if my live review yeah. could have blown yeah. it out of the water. Yeah, yeah. And he's like, mm. Yeah. But it's embarrassing. But, you know, I, w I try not to be like that when I write now. Cause yeah. But it's it's like finding a voice as well. You didn't know. Yeah. You're teaching yourself criticism. Yeah. So you don't, and you yeah. don't have the long view of things. Yeah. It's just all new to you. So. Yeah, yeah. But, you, you, you know, particularly in this current climate, where everything seems to be a bit beige, you know, yeah. you, you having a, an opinion is a good thing, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, to some extent. I mean, I think the, the opposite of that is Twitter and social media, where you have to hate everything and hate it more than the last guy. So. But Twitter is such a, 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 a swamp fest, you know? I kind of like, I, 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 I had it for years and I didn't really use it, and I, 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 find, it, I find it really interesting now because... I can see certain angles being pushed in certain ways, and I'm like, that's a bit scary because you know there, there, there's some covert action that goes on yeah. across all social media platforms. Yeah. You know, but it it's an it's an interesting medium to 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 be involved with, and just block all the people that you know no, are trying to, to tell you you know what you should be doing. You've you know? got to do that. Yeah. I mean, there's always people that just think you weren't quite right and they have to just <laughs> no <laughs> so you, you on on twitter particularly you post punk songs well, regularly i've just started doing that lately just to amuse myself and also because i should be doing something more important at the time. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah i've got my my singles box is quite close to where i write so um i'm just trying to find i wasn't going to write about them but now i've started writing about them yeah um but it's also, you know, those records are... Is that okay now? They're kind of... Um, 
interesting to kind of yeah. remember why you bought things and what was good at the time and all yeah. that. So yeah, but you you know if you were living in North Berwick and you were going into Edinburgh occasionally, you, you were very much dependent on what the shops had. Well, a little yeah. bit, but there was a, a record shop in North Berwick called okay. the Melody Centre. Was that a good one? It was fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was run by uh, Mr. Stewart, who I think was actually called James Stewart, so he okay. should be played by James Stewart in the yeah, film. Yeah. Of the, yeah. Um, but he was a, I always, I always say I think he was a secret jazz fan, but he, he was, um, he would sell anything unless he had a moral objection. So. You, you wouldn't order for a friend of mine the Ivor Biggin record because okay. <laughs> he just thought that was going too far. But he had all the punk singles round the window. Yeah. So, I mean, I can remember the window. There were two locations of the shop, but the first one was in the building that the cinema, which is now demolished, used to be in. Yeah. And all the albums were flat in the window and then the singles were round the bottom. So yeah. he had all these punk records with the picture sleeves round the bottom of the window. So you could go and look at them. Yeah. And he was quite good at getting stuff in. Um, and then when he moved across the road, um, a shop was now a sweet shop called Sugar Mountain. Okay. He uh, became a chart return shop, so he had absolutely bizarre, you know, all the coloured vinyl stuff. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, strange shaped John Cooper Clark records on orange vinyl, yeah. triangular. You know, he had all of that because um, they wanted chart return stuff. So, yeah. and it never sold in North Berwick, so it would go down in price. You know, yeah, it's yeah. like. Yeah. It was a strange little yeah. thing. I mean, it was. It's, 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 it's. I had a shop for a few years, and it is. It is a strange trying to get the balance right between what you want to sell and uh, what actually sells. It is yeah. quite quite tough, you know. But it was quite a kind of. You didn't say much, but I remember I I went in there, in my early teens, and I tried to order Bonnie Tyler's Lost in France. Okay. And he said to me, "I don't think you like that record." I don't think that's one for you. And I thought, okay. And I realised later it was just Bonnie Tyler's hair I was trying to kind of buy through the medium of vinyl. <laughs> but he helped me out and pushed me on the right path, you know. He did the right thing there. Yeah, he let, he let me buy Slade records forever. That was fine. But yeah. But yeah, no, the record shop's very important. There was another one in Portobello. Um, what was it called? Where was that? Was that a little one on the corner? Oh, I've forgotten what it was called. Um, it was one yeah, of the one Muscle yeah. wanted. What was that called? Oh, oh, Ards. Yeah. Oh no, Ards was in Leith, wasn't was it? Was it? Yeah. There was one on Great Junction Street. Yeah, that was Ards. Was that Ards? Yeah. Okay, yeah. Allen's of Portobello. That's it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, you know that had very weird stuff in it as well. Uh, quite often, quite cheap. I've got. Looking through my singles, quite a lot of them have got like 10p stickers on them because, <laughs> you know, he got these strange post punk things like Eddie Mayloff and Sunshine Patterson 12 inches and things like that. It's like, oh, I'll have that. <laughs> I mean, when I kind of like because I would do, I would always do the central Edinburgh shops, and then once every three months, I'd go into East Lothian and do Haddington and uh, Musselburgh and Portobello. Yeah, and see what I could find down there. This is during the eighties, you know. And I remember uh, Alan's in Portobello picking up, I think five of the first Cameo albums, which is something you would never have seen in in any yeah, shop yeah. in Edinburgh at that point. You know, a, a, a decent price. You know. Yeah, no, it it, it was a gold mine, really. It was 
a bit unregulated, wasn't it? Things yeah. were just washing around all around the place. Yeah. See, I had, I had a discussion with Bruce Finley on Twitter like two weeks ago, because I remember at the end of uh, his tenure, the, the shop at Shangwick Place, that they put a load of albums in there that looked like a load of deleted albums. You know, I didn't know what any of it is, but he said it didn't happen, and I'm like, I'm still pretty certain it did. You know, but I, I think with Edinburgh, the, the shop scene changed as soon as the Virgin Megastore opened on Princess Street. Yeah, the big one. Yeah, yeah. This was a great shop, but at the same time, it it, it affected the smaller shops. It totally did. I I interviewed Richard Branson that day. Did you? Yeah, <laughs> and it was it was good because he uh, he told me. Well, I interviewed him in a taxi to the airport, and then. We stopped, he had a hotel out by the airport, and so he did a kind of Alan Sugarish visit where they didn't know he was coming and yeah. had his lunch with me at the airport, and they were all like fluffing him. And then I interviewed him on the plane to London. Uh, so it was a strange two hours. But he was talking about that record shop, and he said, I've got this principle with these record shops is that they must have a cafe in them because we want to recreate this meeting place idea yeah, yeah. for record shops where you it's not just shopping, you're going yeah. there for a social occasion, you're going to do something. And I yeah. said, this one doesn't have a cafe. Yeah. And he went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but he, even that one on Tottenham Court Road never had a cafe. You know? No, but that was his idea. So yeah. <laughs> somebody had pulled the wool over his eyes at some point. <laughs> Alison Mackay, Alternatives to Valium, thank you very much uh, for your time. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Thank you.